Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey folks, the Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this program, more than 600 episodes and counting are all available for free. It's all free. Hundreds of episodes for free. It's a listener-supported show. Your support makes a difference. If you would like to support the Other People podcast this holiday season, you can do so at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Another great way to help the show is to rate and review the program over at iTunes, over at Apple. You know how to do that, right? You look up the podcast, you rate it, you review it. That helps. Okay? Happy holidays. Hello, hey. Welcome to the Other People program. I'm Brad Listy. It's nice to be with you. I'm in Los Angeles, and I have... Mark Guerin on the program today. He has a debut novel out called You Can See More from Up Here. It's available from Golden Antelope Press, a terrific little indie. It is the official December pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. The NervousBreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community. Uh, it's, it is helmed now by Joseph Grantham, the editor in chief. And uh, it has its own monthly book club and has for about a decade. So if you're interested in joining the club, it's great. You get a book every month. I interview the authors on this program. You can read and then listen or listen and then read. It's your choice. Just uh, check it out over at thenervousbreakdown.com. So Mark Guerin coming up in a moment. Again, his novel is called You Can See More From Up Here. Before we get there, I do want to read some mail. I have some mail that's been piling up. A listener named Julie from Lexington, Kentucky writes, Dear Brad, episode 615 with Abigail Tartelin was another great one. And in your opening monologue about varieties of self-congratulatory social media posts, 
It was so cathartic to hear you critique wedding anniversary posts. As a divorced person, I find these very painful to read. I had previously drafted my own version, knowing that I would never actually post it for my 500 Facebook friends. But now, I would like to share it here. Quote, Sad anniversary. 21 years ago today, I made the worst decision of my life. I bet on someone I shouldn't have. I squandered my youth with an unsuitable spouse who made me miserable. Now that we're divorced, I'm always either lonely or recovering from the latest dating app breakup. I was so much stupider than all of you, and every time you post about your brilliant choice of spouse and enduring happiness, it makes me feel worse about myself." End quote. Wouldn't that be hilarious and such a shocker for my friends to read? Sincerely, Julie. You know, Julie, there's a part of me that wants you to post that. I think it's funny. I think it's something people need to hear. I think social media and the way in which it uh, fosters the impulse to advertise oneself and to curate and to put on some sort of uh, show for people, I think we don't realize how that can negatively impact people. You know, I think like in general, one of the great failings or maybe the great failing of the human animal is our inability to imagine with real depth and understanding the circumstances of other people's lives, emotionally and otherwise. Even people who are, you know, right at close range inside our own homes or close friends, family members, these failures of the imagination, which, you know, I always like to point out, I think reading helps to ameliorate this somewhat. I think people who read deeply tend to be better at these kinds of imaginings, but Nevertheless, you know, uh, nobody's perfect. And I think we could all stand to give some more thought to how we behave on social media, myself included, and how it, uh, you know, what we share or don't share impacts people. But, you know, part of me wants you to just put that up on Facebook and see what people say. I bet there's going to be people who respond affirmatively and who thank you for saying something. There's also probably going to be people who think you're just being... You know, what's the word? Fussy, negative. It's your call. But I mean, I can, you know, you could put a photo with it that's kind of funny. You could try for like the humor, you know, dark humor to go along with it just to help the medicine go down. Like maybe it's like a picture of you alone in a field or something. Like you're walking by yourself on a beach. Or it's like you with like, I don't know, like 24 cats. Anyway, I appreciate you listening. I wish you well. Don't give up. And, you know, if you want to, uh, you know, I'm not going to give relationship advice, but just hang in there, okay? Good things happen. Bad things happen, but good things happen too. A listener named Stefan writes, Hi, Brad. I started listening to episode 614 with Fiona Allison Duncan. And when she mentioned Sarah Nicole Prickett and you said it was one of your most difficult interviews, I immediately jumped back to Sarah's episode, episode 354. What an other people classic that was. Things may have gotten off to a bad start when you ask Sarah Nicole Prickett, is her magazine a feminist rag? But honestly, I just think she had a very offbeat sense of humor. My, my two favorite moments, though, were when she made you name the provinces of Canada and then when she took a break to take an Ativan. All best, Stefan. So, thank you, Stefan. 
A couple things. You know, first of all, I was just so people have context. When I was talking to Fiona Allison Duncan, she knows Sarah Nicole Prickett, past guest on this program. And it was years ago that I interviewed Sarah over the transom. We were on Skype or whatever. And I just remembered it being difficult. Or maybe I was nervous or I don't know. Anytime I talked to somebody, like she was uh, the editor of, uh, you know, a magazine. Did I call it a feminist rag? Jesus Christ. What is wrong with me? You know, I didn't mean it uh, in a derogatory way. I did think I was trying to be casual or something. I'd have to listen to it. But, you know, I have this memory of this thing going a certain way. And then it probably wasn't as bad as I thought is what it sounds like. You know, it's one of those situations where you imagine somebody doesn't like you. Or, you know, I get into situations uh, conversationally Whenever there is a uh, feminist or a racial context, I do get a little nervous. I got to admit, I got to be better about that. And, you know, what's interesting is that you just got to forget about it. I I psych myself out because I get worried about saying something stupid. And then I worry about it. And then I do say something stupid. Whereas if I didn't worry about it, I probably wouldn't say anything stupid. I would just have a conversation. You know? But it, fe- it feels like I'm walking through some kind of minefield or something. Any second, I'm going to trip the wire and everything's going to blow up in my face. But I'm glad to hear that the episode's better than I remember. You know, hopefully she didn't hate me. <laughs> you know, that's the other thing about like doing these interviews. You know, they're in-depth interviews. To do them over the phone, it just bugs me because I can't see the person. And that's one of the reasons why, it, you know, it bugs me is that I need to have some visual read. And I know you can do like video, but I don't, I don't like to do that. When I do interviews over the transom, as I did with Mark Guerin, and incidentally, it went fine. Like it, it can go fine, and it usually does. But the problem and the reason I prefer to do them in person is that sometimes, you know, you're wondering. And I don't do video. I don't like Skype with somebody and look at them because I actually find it distracting, which is strange because I like to look at the person when they're in here. But when I'm interviewing somebody over the phone, for some reason, I just want to hear them. It's just easier for me to concentrate or something. It's like, it's like weirdly distracting to have like a video playing in front of me. Anyway, thanks, Stefan, for listening and writing and, and uh, giving me some feedback on that. A listener named Judy writes, Dear Brad, this year and last, I made an effort to catch up on the unread TNB Book Club books on my shelf. In that time, I read 20 of them. Last night, I finished The One-Eyed Man by Ron Curry. The high quality of these books is an achievement, I think. Six were five-star, eight were four-star, six were three-star for me. Many of them were books I would not have heard of, let alone read, if not for you. I wonder how you go about curating the books you choose. I'm interested because I spend a good amount of my time curating my own lists of books that I want to read. So how come I hadn't heard of so many of the books that you chose? Thanks for keeping me up. On so many great authors, signed Judy. So thanks, Judy. The Nervous Breakdown Book Club is curated by myself and Jonathan Evison, an old pal of mine, a past guest on this program multiple times, great author. He and I, uh, you know, it's a combination of things. We reach out to editors and publicists. Publicists and editors will reach out to us. Sometimes authors reach out to us directly. Uh, Johnny knows a lot about what's in the pipeline. He's kind of got his ear to the ground in publishing. I've got a pretty good awareness myself, so we'll talk, we'll think of some books. 
Um, I'll send out an email blast, and it usually happens quickly. There's usually a lot of demand, and uh, you know, more books than we can um, accommodate. But it's just some combination, you know. And it's been we've been doing it for so many years that a lot of people sort of know the club and know us, and um, we've been fortunate to feature a lot of great books including books, you know, on indie presses or books that might be mid-list or not getting the kind of attention that we feel they deserve. And that's part of the fun is that we get to spotlight them. So I appreciate your writing, Judy. If anybody out there wants to join the book club, again, you can do that over at thenervousbreakdown.com. It's a great holiday stocking stuffer. It's the gift that keeps on giving the whole year through, right? Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And speaking of which, uh, let's get to the interview for today. My guest is Mark Guerin. And his novel, his debut novel, You Can See More From Up Here, is out there now from Golden Antelope Press, the official December pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Such a good conversation with a very gifted author. Are you ready? Here he is, folks. This is Mark Guerin. Well, um, uh, the book is about, um, uh, uh, it's based on when I was uh, in college and I was working at a um, automobile plant that my father was the, uh, the, the company doctor. And my doctor, my, my, my dad had been very successful before he had this job. He was a, a colonel in the Air Force. He was one of the first MASH doctors before MASH was a thing. You know, MASH the movie and the TV show were set in Korea, and he was a, a, a doctor who set up portable hospitals uh, during World War II in New Guinea. And he actually, so he says, or so he used to say, he actually helped develop the whole program of, of how to, to systematically create uh, portable hospitals and take them down and put them up quickly and move them around the jungle. And uh, so he, he, he earned a lot of accolades for that. Uh, but as he got older, 
um, and he stayed in the Air Force. He moved up, uh, and in 1965, he was commander of his own hospital and a full colonel, and then he was forced to retire early, and that's how we ended up in this job uh, at a Chrysler plant in Belvedere, Illinois, and it was a job that was sort of a demotion for him. He was now doing uh, workers' comp stuff and, and – um, uh, handling injuries uh, on the job and doing physicals. And he sort of took that out on his family, which is sort of the reason why I wrote the book. So, you know, I started recognizing that the, the problems um, uh, that he was having when I started the summer job, which is where the book sort of starts with the summer job. Uh, when I started the summer job at Chrysler, and I started seeing how people uh, didn't really like him. And, and they, they gave uh, me jobs that uh, seemed particularly difficult. And uh, I, I double checked this with my brothers. I actually have five brothers and they've all had jobs there too. They felt they went through the same thing too, that they were given lousy jobs because of who uh, our father was. Um, so when people, just to get back to your original question, why two timelines? When people uh, ask that question, I say, well, well, well um, uh, with, when I wrote the book originally with the 1974 timeline, uh, my character came off as kind of a spoiled rich kid getting his first job in an automobile plant. And it was if he thought he was better than everyone else. And I kept trying to tell people, you know, it's not that he thinks he's better than everybody else. It's just he doesn't know any better. And I realized I only understood that uh, because I have the advantage of of, of time on my end, of, of perspective from, from many years later to look back on my youth and see uh, exactly what kind of uh, kid I was and how uh, entitled I was in certain ways. And that's sort of what the book is about. And um, so when people complained about that timeline problem and saying, saying you know, that, that that's kidded in the 1974 seems kind of spoiled, I thought, well, maybe I'd add the perspective of uh, somebody looking back over the years. So that's when I added the 2004 timeline. And that seemed to solve the problem that people seemed to – now they were seeing the character both in 1974 and looking back and reflecting on those years and the errors that he made as a teenager. And I think they felt more sympathetic toward uh, the character when they saw him in these two different timelines. Yeah, it definitely worked for me. And I, it, what it makes me think, though, is like, you know, that's a big problem. And this is one of the, the hard truths about writing books of any kind is that if you go through the process and you really do the work, you are likely to happen upon... Uh, something that's not working in the book that requires a lot of labor to fix. It's not like an e it's not like a, a couple of small brushstrokes and it's done. Like that's a pretty that's a pretty yeah. big undertaking. And so I guess the question I would ask you is like, <clears throat> you know, did it ever? Did you ever get into a situation like that with this book, or you know, in, in other writing projects in your life where it, it it sort of knocked you back and and sapped your energy, or do you find it invigorating once once you know that it might be a fix? <laughs> Uh, it depends upon how intractable the problem is. I think in this case, you know, um, I'm not sure how I came to the, the realization of, of what the solution was, but it was just pretty disheartening to hear those those kinds of comments at first. Um, but uh, 
yeah, I mean, of the first couple of books I've written, I have I, I, I had problems with plotting and I eventually gave up on them. And this is the first book that I actually completed to my satisfaction. And I've got a newer one since then that I've worked on that's intractable for other reasons. But, um, you, you know, that's that's that is an issue th that you have to deal with and you just have to keep working through them. And I belong in a writing group and, and uh, my other writing friends are, are dealing with the same problems and they tend to go back and some of them tend to go back and write and rewrite earlier scenes rather than deal with the problems at hand and and I always say man you got to focus on that the biggie problem you can't you can't fix it by working on other stuff you have to focus on the 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 you know the the main, the main issue there and and see if you can work that through otherwise nothing else that you do no matter how many times you rewrite the beginning of the book uh, that's not going to help you with the big problem so can you talk about you? You know, you mentioned this writing group. Is it Grub Street? Is that? No, actually. Well, actually, there. Uh, my writing group is uh, um, uh, a group of five, six people. It's, it's been uh, evolving over the years, but they are actually all graduates of a program that we all attended at Grub Street called the Novel Incubator Program, which was a really great one-year-long almost MFA quality program where the writers uh, and, and students in the class are actually workshopping entire novels. So there's 10 people in the class and uh, everybody gets to present their entire novel and you have to read all 10 novels and respond to them and they get workshopped uh, a week at a time. Then you get a chance to rewrite them and resubmit them and read them again. Um, so that that really taught me a whole lot about uh, the novel writing processes going through that program. And since then, uh, um, I, you know, I've, I've joined this writing group with other people who've been to, through this program. We've all learned from the same. Uh, uh, we've we've all gone through the same curriculum and have the same approach to writing. So that, that's been very beneficial in, in in helping me develop as a writer. Yeah, you all have sort of like this. You know, it's like a lingua franca, at least in terms of how you might approach it or talk about it. it. Yes, exactly. We we all use the same terminology and and uh, and and the same buzzwords, and it, it you know it helps to it helps to abbreviate some of the conversations since we all know what each other's talking about. And for people listening, Grub Street is in Boston, right? Grub Street is a nonprofit uh, writing school for lack of better words in Boston and in downtown Boston they're just moving into in the in the spring into this gorgeous new uh, facility uh, that's on the waterfront uh, the Boston waterfront um, and they teach um, all sorts of playwriting I mean all sorts of writing um, in terms of genre and styles playwriting and screenwriting short stories essays memoir uh, they started off with a novel incubator and then they moved into a nonfiction incubator and an essay incubator. And these are all long form uh, classes. Some of them are 10 weeks, some of them are six months, some of them are a year. Uh, but they found quite a bit of success uh, with these long form programs. Um, and uh, they're, they're, they're quite successful with those. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it sounds to me like it was pivotal in your development. And it's also interesting to me that you did this at a later stage of your life, like publishing your debut novel, um, you're not the, you know, the 24 year old wonderkind or whatever. Is this something you've always wanted to do or is it something you realized you wanted to do as you got into um, middle age? 
Well, I always wanted to do it. I mean, I was uh, a creative writer since uh, I was in college. I was the editor of my literary magazine and um, at uh, Northern Illinois University, where I went to undergrad school. And then I got an MFA at Brandeis University in, in playwriting. And I wasn't able to, you know, I was living in Boston. I wasn't able to make a living as a playwright or a dramaturg or a literary manager. Those are the kinds of professions I was shooting for. So I ended up continuing working as a business writer, which is what I've done all along. Um, and uh, what, what was the question again? I feel like I got off track. Well, just deciding to do Grub Street and wanting to um, oh, yeah. make when, that when... shift. Right, and and whether I've done this all, been been interested in writing all along. Yeah, I've been. Uh, so so uh, you know, I I sort of had to table my my um, creative writing career for a long time while I was uh, raising my kids and focused on on um, being a father and so forth. And then uh, when I was 56 years old, um, I was working at a bank doing training programs, and they decided they were going to move me from something that I found relatively interesting to something I found totally uninteresting, being an event manager or some 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 uh, job like that. And I decided, you know, I've had enough of that. I want to get back to something I really wanted to do. And I had tried writing uh, on the train, on the commute into Boston. I could just never keep my mind on the project. I found myself sort of um, going off in different directions every time I'd come back to my book. And I, it, was, it would turn out to be three or four different books. And I realized I, I just, I'm just the kind of writer who needs to focus full time on something in order to get it done. So finally, when I was 56 years old, I, I, I started taking writing classes. And then a few years later, I've got into the novel incubator program. But I was really able to focus for the first time full time on my writing and do and work every day and keep the project in mind and not lose track of it. And uh, then if I, you know, I finally was able to create an environment that was really conducive to, to being very productive and successful as a writer. Yeah, I, I can relate to that. I mean, it's such an all, it's such an immersive process working on a book. I, I marvel at anybody who could do it in drips and drabs rather than being sort of all in and getting into a real rhythm and working every day or close to it. Like that's certainly the way I have to do it. It's hard for me to, to do it piecemeal and have any, and have any sense of continuity. Yeah, I really admire those people who can have a day job and continue to write and because they just, you know, they take more hours of the day. They get up at five in the morning or whatever. They work late at night. And I just never had the energy to do to to because I was a writer at work, too. And, and, and there's just so many writing hours you have in the day and to do both the business stuff and the creative stuff all in one day. I just could never do it. So I really admire those folks who have the energy to do that. Well, but I mean, you know, I feel like. <laughs> What's the old adage? You know, if you want to, you got to, you save time for writing or you do your creative writing first, like at the crack of dawn or earlier. Right. Or you have a day job that doesn't use the same muscles, you know, which you, yeah. didn't, which you did not have. You had a writing job. So I, I exactly. get it. You know, you, you sort of, uh, you have to spend your energy somewhere. Right, right. And I kept using that, that one muscle and I didn't really have any other al alternative uh, career paths for me. So it really sort of wiped out my ability to do any creative stuff because I was using that one same muscle on, on business writing all the time. So I want to ask a little bit more about feedback because, you know, as I said at the top, talking about how lived in this material feels, like not only from a autobiographical standpoint, but also just from a, a labor standpoint. I can tell when a book when someone has really put in the time, um, you can see it on the page. And so, you know, you talk about this workshop environment and this group that you've been a part of that, I, I guess like everybody's in disparate locations. You're doing this online. 
Um, no, actually, I, I drive down to Boston to to meet with my group and uh, the the novel incubator program. I actually commuted for that too because uh, we have to be living up here in Maine during that program too. But no, that was all done face to face. And and actually, I'm not a a big fan of of online classes. I mean, it's okay doing online conversations and occasionally because of the weather, I have to call into my my writing group. Uh, um, but uh, I try to do face to faces as much as I can. Got it. Okay. But like the feedback that you got on the book was instrumental in helping you bring it to its fully realized form. Can you talk just a a bit more about the role that that played in the creative development of the novel? Well, uh, let me point out, first of all, this is not the book that I developed in the Novel Incubator Program. That was a different book, um, uh, which I could never figure out how to, 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 um, to complete, uh, I mean, when we got done with the, the final class, um, final workshop of that book, the, the, com- the class was completely split on how I should fix the book, and I was completely split on it too, and I could never figure out which direction to go, and, and I'd want to get into discussion about the book. But at any rate, I found that program incredibly instructive on the process of novel writing and thinking about um, completing a book and the business of writing a book. And uh, so I applied um, that knowledge toward uh, this book that you that, that, that you have. And actually, what's interesting, I did get um, feedback from some online workshops. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of a, a, an online group called Scribophile. No. Uh, they are it's basically an online workshop where you post uh your work in chapters like 3000 word chunks and um there are various different groups and different groups handle the feedback in different ways but when you post your work you can actually uh edit uh, put comments and underline and highlight just the same way an editor would so that you could point out to to so so you're doing this you're you're doing this um uh in, in exchange for 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 other feedback so you put your stuff up somebody uh, will read it and give you feedback and uh but in order to give you feedback you have to to read their stuff and give feedback as well okay. so um there were different ways to do it i joined a a, a particular group within scribophile called uber group where they were focused on novel writing and i was able to post my entire novel in chunks which was very interesting because i had readers from all over the world i had readers from texas and new york and singapore and england and uh, i got some wildly different um uh feedback uh, but very useful that because they all were able to give me a sense of what's you know the basic humanity that I needed to go after, even though these were people from different parts of the world and and very different cultural experiences. They were helped me. They all helped me to see what the human values were that I were trying to go to distill it down to the human values that I was trying to go after in the book. So I found that process extremely useful. And then um, I also helped develop it through my local Boston uh, uh, group. So um, that's really uh, the feedback that I employed in developing this particular novel was first the online group Scribophile and then my my writing group here in Boston. That, that's significant. That's a significant number of perspectives that, um, you know, we're weighing in. And I guess like one of the questions that comes up when it comes to uh, this sort of exercise is how to know when to take advice or when to leave it be? Did you notice certain um, lines of critique that were consistent from person to person? Did you have a criteria that you used to evaluate? I have a very specific criteria, and that is that there needs to be consensus, that it can't just be one person's opinion. If two or three or four 
people all agree that there is a sim- all agree on on a problem that that they see the see something that is wrong that 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 uh, a character looks too rich and spoiled and uh, you need to fix that somehow then that's a consensus opinion and that that drives me back to the drawing board and, and makes me come up with a, a different timeline um, so yeah that's that's what I always look for because you know. Uh, in writing groups online or when you're when you're sending out your stuff for reviews one person can have a wild wild idea of 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 what's wrong with the book and you can say okay that's one person um but then if you get two or three or four people all saying the same thing then you know you really have a problem and that's what you should focus on so i always look for a consensus i never trust just one person's opinion yeah I, i'm kind of the same way because like my tendency is that i believe any criticism of my work like people could say anything i'm a, i'll find myself in agreement and, uh, you know, I guess that's a temperamental thing more than a creative thing. And so, you know, if you get three people saying it, then you feel like you have some sort of mathematical basis for making changes rather than some emotional or temperamental basis. Exactly. And, uh, you know, I think, too, that having people from various cultural backgrounds, um, I'm imagining it's a, a variety of, uh, you know, different gender. Uh, there's men, women reading it. Like, that's got to be a useful and kind of unique uh, process to take a book through. Like, not everybody does that. And I can't help yeah. but imagine that it would make the book better. Seems like a, like a, a very good, a very wise thing to do. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's what I originally learned in the novel incubator program. I, mean, I had 10 different people read that book, and they all had very divergent opinions. Uh, they all tended to agree that the book wasn't working. Um, but I've, I've been workshopping stuff since uh, since college, I mean, I, I belong to a uh, a group called the Chicago Dramatist Workshop. When I right out of college, where I was writing plays and we would stage them on a Saturday afternoon, and there'd be 40, 50 people walking in off the street who would have the chance to view the staged reading, and then immediately after they'd sit down with us and they'd give us their feedback, and it was very useful in helping us develop, you know, what characters were working, what storylines were were working, and what weren't. And I've always valued that and respected that that. that that if you can't if you can't figure out a way to please an audience, and if you're only writing for yourself, then you probably won't please an audience. So um, I've always uh, respected uh, my audience and tried to to get my stuff in front of as many people as I could before uh, actually trying to publish or produce it. Yeah, you know it's funny. I, I think about this a lot. I think one of the talents that is perhaps undervalued or doesn't get talked about enough when it comes to writing is a person's ability or instinct for what will please an audience and a, a, a writer's ability to really inhabit the perspective of a reader and to view their yeah. work, to view their work through that lens. Because I think most writers that I come across, you know, have a facility with language and can turn a phrase and, you know, have a sense of, uh, you know, understanding of uh, the human condition, like all that kind of stuff, you know, but it's, it's another thing entirely to be able to really, communicate with someone else and to view your work through that lens with clarity. Uh, And some people have a real, I mean, I don't know if I have maybe the sharpest, uh, I don't know if I have maybe the sharpest ability to do that compared to some people I know. And Mm -hmm. the people I know who are really good at it, you know, it's, it's just a small handful. I can think of a couple off the top of my head where they just seem to have an intuition 
about what will please an audience. Uh, I yeah. wish I wish I had a better sense of that. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I think you also have to have a thick skin. You have to be able to listen to feedback and to not respond emotionally to it and try to see where they're coming from and to see where they're being reasonable and see where they're being emotional and see where their biases are coming in. And, and that's, that's a trick, too. Um, I was going to say one thing that I found very useful was a book called Wired for Story, and I think the author's name is Lisa Cron, and she writes basically about the science of how people read and what their brains react to as they're reading, and it's sort of what you're trying to do when you're writing is you're trying to anticipate what it is that will make uh, the neurons fire in your reader's brain as they're going along, and she talks about story and, and character and details and visceral sort of details, and those are the kinds of things that that fire the neurons in your reader's mind. So, and I, I think that's one thing I liked about the novel incubator program is that my instructor in that program really got that, really understood sort of the things uh, that that they get that turn readers on. You know, literally turn them on. Um, and 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 that's one of the best things that she taught us. Who was your instructor? Uh, her name is Michelle Hoover, and she's written, she's published several novels now, and she's been doing this, uh, I think she's on the ninth year now. We do uh, 10 students a year, so she's got like 90 graduates. The program actually has a really great success rate. I think um, something like 15 to 20% of the graduates of the program have agents and maybe 10 or 15% have published novels at this point. So um, it's been really successful and uh, I owe a lot of that success to Michelle. And is Wired for Story, the book that you alluded to earlier, is that a, te is that a textbook for the incubator program? No, it's it's just a craft book that I came across a couple of years ago that uh, I've seen other writers refer to that, that that we've all found very useful. It's a different way of thinking about craft, just thinking about the science of of the way people physiologically respond when they're reading and what what lights them up and what doesn't and so forth. Yeah, that's I, I, yeah. I, I need to read that book and figure it <laughs> figure it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I want to ask you about. Um, the the book that you worked on in I know there were, there was the book that you worked on in the workshop that you ultimately abandoned correct right right and yeah. then you got to this book yes. and you know correct me if I'm wrong but I find that the it is often the case that we work on a project that will elude us um, as a way perhaps of avoiding the project that we really need to write. And I don't know if this is the case for you, but I think about the fact that you've dedicated the book to your dad, that this book mm -hmm. really is a meditation on, uh, it's a fiction, you know, it's a novel, but it is in, in its way a meditation on the relationship uh, that you had with your father on him as a person and how the two of you related or didn't relate. Um, right. Do you have a sense of this book being that, like, wow, this is the one, this is the thing that I really needed to write all all along. And maybe I was throat clearing with the with the first book, and that's probably why I couldn't solve the puzzle. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's what I always say about this book. This is the book I needed to write, that it was like uh, my, constitutionally I, I had to write this book to get it out of my system so I could move on to other kinds of things. And um, it originally started with a, a short excerpt. I mean, you might re recall there's a, an incident with a tin kazoo in the book that, that that leads to some confrontation between the father and the son and, and, and his sister. And uh, I originally wrote that uh, – that, that 
that was based on a true incident or true story that that happened and i wrote that for a class at grub street back in probably 2011 or 2012 and that was the seed um you know i said why you know i kept saying to myself why did this happen why does this mean so much to me i mean people go through this kind of stuff all the time that 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 having difficult relationships with your father i mean everybody has difficult relationships with their parents why does this stick with me and that was you know an itch i always had to, to scratch and um with that you know i i think i did that at some time while i was also working on this other book but i kept wanting to go back to that and saying you know i have to get back back to this eventually and when that and when the the, the incubator book didn't work i started seeing my way of uh, of of turning that that story into because I, I wanted to investigate why was my father behaving this way, and so that's why I started, uh, you know, really setting it in the plant and and the summer job and trying to figure out what was going on that that made my father so unhappy, and uh, sort of it was an investigation and a speculation, and I I just wanted to figure that out, and um, so yeah, it was it was it was an itch that I always wanted to scratch, and uh, I think once I realized that the novel incubator book wasn't going to work, I finally found my way into it. Yeah, that, that I, that's very relatable to me. You know, the, I think the operative word that occurs to me is confusion. Like writing, yeah. writing towards big confusion, like deep confusion, uh, seems to be the way to go. I mean, there's a reason why it's there, and there's a reason why it itches. <laughs> yeah, 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 and it sticks with you. It's if the confusion sticks with you, and you want to, you want clarity, uh, then you know that you're on to something, right? You know that something is very meaningful to you, and and uh, you know. One of the things I tell people after writing this book is that I think you really can benefit from writing your own experience because those things that happen in growing up and, and in your childhood and with your parents, those things stick with you and there's sort of a visceral memory that, that's that's so much more available to your writing senses of, of your own experiences that can help you um, with your writing than in simply trying to make things up wholesale. Um, so, so, yeah. Well, and I just talked to Tim O'Brien last week on this show, and uh, we were talking. He wrote a book, basically written, uh, addressed to his two uh, sons, young sons. He had children late in life, and he was writing this book as a, like a memoir to basically um, make sure that they would know who their father was. And, mm -hmm. you know, a theme of the book and a theme of the conversation that I had with him was this unknowability of other people, whether they are friends, family people in the street, you know, just one human being trying to know another human being is quite a feat. Even, uh, even our partner, our spouse or significant other, you know, you can be intimate with somebody and still have, uh, quite a lot of, uh, mystery involved in terms of who they are and how their brains work and what's going on in the private recesses of their mind. And so, um, you know, that's kind of how your book strikes me as a, as an attempt at trying to know your father better and to, even, right. even if it's a, a fictional exercise, I would imagine it gave you insights that might have turned out to be somewhat surprising or unexpected. Is that the case? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people ask me, well, why didn't you just write a memoir? I mean, oh. it starts off, it's about your father and so much of the, the the backstories about your father, and then it turns into fiction. And it was like, I could never figure, you know, you're dealing with, with with facts and you're dealing with history, it's a lot of the incidents that happen in the world are unrelated or seemingly unrelated. And it's hard to, to connect the dots and, and to, to, to make, 
the causal sort of um, um, arguments for 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 why something happened or why a person is the way they are. And in a way, it's easier to to write fiction and to speculate on on why something happened by creating a through line and a trajectory and an arc. And that's basically what I did was I, I, you know, I created a story that helped me to push my character to confront his father and to, to, to try to get the answers to the questions that, that he was, he was always unable to, to get from his father. And that was sort of what I was going through. Um, and, uh, you know, I never would have gotten those answers anyway. Um, my father passed away 15 years ago. So, um, a memoir would have been, uh, you know, it would have been a slice of life, but I don't think it would have been satisfying to me because I wouldn't have been able to get at those kinds of questions and answers that I was always seeking. Yeah. And I, you know, I also feel like there is, um, an element of permission, uh, that one has to give oneself, or maybe you get someplace emotionally, maybe enough time passes and you have perspective. Um, but time does play a role in one's ability to work on the writing that one really deeply needs to work on. At least that's been my experience. You know, you, you, mm -hmm. some, you sometimes have to be a little bit patient, right? Yeah, I mean, if you mean time in terms of memory, um, in terms of letting things sort of sit to sit with you and sort of uh, uh, condense and 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 uh, um, you know sort of uh, work themselves out in your mind and and and, and come to some sort of uh, fermentation. I guess I guess that's what you're going at. Yeah, uh, there there's that. But uh, uh, for me, I have a terrible memory, so also trying to piece together the facts of what was going on uh, in my life back then and trying to put make some logic to it. That's what made it difficult for me to write a memoir too. It was a lot easier to make up some stuff to sort of be the glue to, to, to put things together than to try to write in a memoir and be accurate in, 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 in conveying actually what happened. Yeah. And it makes me think too about my own relationship with my kids as, you know, my role as a dad and then my relationship with my parents, you know, and my role or, my, you know, my life as a son and mm -hmm. this question of knowability, mm -hmm. you know, I like to think that my kids will know me and that I will um, be honest with them and communicative with them and let them know who I am. But something about these roles uh, sort of precludes you a little bit from being yeah. able to completely open up. Like your kids are looking to you to run the ship. You can't come home from work one day and be like, wow. I'm dissatisfied with my day job. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. Especially when they're younger kids and they may not understand. And I mean, I completely, I can completely understand why my father didn't complain at the dinner table about uh, all the awful things that were going on at work, how he's being pressured by management to cut costs at the same time he was trying to, to offer workers comp to, to, to workers who, who said they were in need. And he was always caught in the middle. And, you know, I could just never see him complaining about that kind of thing in front of us. And he never did. But that's sort of the conclusion I finally came to as to why he ended up behaving the way he did, that he was really caught between a rock and a hard place in terms of uh, his job and, and that that created the behavior for him. But that was the kind of stuff, you know, he couldn't talk about with me and I could never imagine talking about that kind of stuff with my younger kids, maybe with my kids as they've grown up. 
And, uh, you know, my kids have read my book now, and I think they see me in a different light now than, than, uh, than they did when they were younger because, you know, I talk about uh, a very difficult relationship between a father and son, and that's that's not the kind of thing you want to talk about necessarily with your young kids because uh, you're trying to develop a good relationship with them, and you don't really want them to reflect on bad relationships. So. You mean that wasn't a bedtime story for you when you were – No. <laughs> <laughs> nope, we didn't. No, no. Not too many bedtime stories, no. So um, what about permission? Because you mentioned – how many siblings do you have? You mentioned – mentioned five brothers or yeah yeah i was i mean I, i've written about this too because I, I thought quite a bit about how i was going to handle um permission in terms of who i was going to write about so as i said my both my parents are dead and i felt it was okay to write about them but i didn't want to write about any of my siblings so um what i did was i, I basically the two uh, two siblings in the book there's a boy called a brother called Frazier and a sister called uh, Piper, who are both sort of extensions of myself. Frazier was very much into theater. I was into theater when I graduated college. Uh, Piper was is is kind of a lonely girl who bangs on the piano and who sort of gets herself ostracized from school because uh, she people can't relate to her and she can't relate to them. And that was sort of me when I when my father got out of the air force and moved us to this small town and I could just never really make friends while I was uh, in this small town. Uh, and those characters are totally unlike my actual sister and my actual brothers. I did use bits and pieces. There was uh, a bit of, of what went on between my father and my sister, my my sister being my father's favorite. And as I said, this is based on an actual incident, uh, a kazoo story where uh, uh, my, my, my father, my, my sister being my father's favorite, uh, got, had an accident that I was involved in and she blamed me on it fairly because I was I was uh, at fault, but my father went after me. And, um, you know, that I used that sense of, her being daddy's little girl and just sort of blew that entirely out of proportion. And when I, after I finished writing the book and I got it published and I had um, some, uh, you know, before it was actually came out, uh, I had review copies. Uh, the first person I sent a copy to was my sister because she was the one who was uh, closest to me actually getting into a story about somebody's, uh, an actual person's life. And I wrote her a long letter saying, you know, this isn't you. I used one aspect of our relationship and I blew that totally out of proportion for for uh, writerly reasons. I wanted to depict a certain kind of relationship between the father and the sister and the brother. And she said she had to read the book twice because the first time she read it, she had went through all this cognitive dissonance of seeing herself, but seeing this other character who was so much worse than she was. And I said, yeah, you know, you something happened a couple times when, when we were growing up. And um, I totally took that and ran with it as an, as part of the reason why the father is sort of abusive toward the son. And she, after reading it the second time, she said, yeah, I could see how it became fictionalized. And she was fine with it after that. And uh, really, none of the other incidents involving the brother and the sister are, are anything that I, I drew from my siblings' life. So um, most of them have read it. They're, they're all fine with it. I haven't had any issues with that. But I was very concerned about that as I was writing the book and trying to avoid uh, anything that, that really painted them in, in, in a bad light. But it turned out okay. I mean, all the siblings are good with it. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, like I say, I, I, have you ever read *The Homeward Angel*, uh, Thomas Wolfe's book? Um, you know, he wrote about his family uh, in in Nashville, North Carolina, and uh, he wrote about them very gra- graphically about his his father who was a drunk and his mother who was very domineering, and uh, he had a huge family, brothers and sisters, all who had troubles, and he got into all sorts of trouble with his family because he didn't try to disguise anything, and he didn't, uh, you know, he didn't wait until anybody died. Before before he'd written this, they were all alive, and and he basically was uh, shunned for for a number of years, and was wasn't able to go back home until they finally forgave him. And I didn't want that kind of thing happening to me. But the thing was about that book was that it gave me permission to write this book because that I that I saw you could do it, but if I you know just was a little more careful about the way I handled my permissions that he was his, that maybe I could get away with it. Yeah, I was going to say in the actual drafting of the book, were you thinking about this sort of thing, or was it was it the case that you sort of let yourself run free in the drafting and then tried to think about permissions and the sensitivities of family members after the fact? Yeah, I, I think as I was revising, I, I disguised them a little more. I mean, I changed hair color and I, you know, I changed behaviors a little bit more the more I, I wrote about it. because people would ask that question. I'd say, yeah, I got to be really careful that this doesn't really look too much like this person or that person. But, um, you know, really, as I say, it was really the only the only characters I really felt I was writing um uh, factually about were my father and my mother and uh, the the other characters just didn't feel like my siblings they felt like uh, you know just tiny aspects of of things that my siblings had done that that I took and ran with in, in a fictional way so I didn't feel like I was invading their space or invading their privacy at all uh, from the beginning but I did feel like you know I want to make sure there's not even any visual uh, sort of similarities so I, I tried to avoid that as I continued revising. So I want to ask you about memory. You mentioned just a bit ago that you have a terrible memory, which uh, (laughs) I can relate to as well. I always bitch about my memory on this show. I can't remember a damn thing. It's crazy. (laughs) Like, I think mine might be extra bad. And, uh, you know, yet I feel like you have written uh, a protagonist who shares, you know, a bit in common with you, Uh, you know, sort of a proxy for you. Uh, And you have rendered the adolescent experience and the adolescent perspective with really great acuity, um, which would seem to indicate that you have a decent memory or that you did some sort of work to get back inside of that perspective um, with authenticity. And then, you know, doing, I was snooping around online and doing a little prep for the, for the conversation. And I believe I read that your wife is a psychologist Yes, she is. <laughs> okay, so maybe I'm maybe I'm a, I just blew your cover, but I'm curious to know uh, about the creative process that you went through in the absence of having one of these photographic memories that I guess a few people or a few writers have. Like, like, how did you build characters that um, are existing um, out of sync, at least chronologically, with where you currently are in your life, um, right. and to make sure that you you got it right. Right. Well, you know, as they say, it's the difficult or negative memories that you have that that sink their fangs into you the deepest. I think I think one metaphor I use in the book, he's talking about this at one point. He talks about how these things dig much deeper crevices in your memories uh, that 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 subsequent memories are not strong enough to pave over and that they really just they they just live with you. And, I, you know, so I based 
a lot of this on the very negative sort of feelings that I was going through um, in my adolescence. And those are much more clear to me than a lot of uh, a lot of other kinds of memories that I may have had. So working at the plant, for instance, and the visceral memories I have of actually trying to extract um, um, seat springs from railroad cars and drag them out and, and beat a clock where I knew that if I didn't get them uh, on a train in a certain amount of time, you know, I'd get in trouble for falling behind, you know, that creates a really strong visceral memory. Um, so, so that's, those are the kinds of things that, that, you know, I tell writers, uh, other writers, you know, one reason why you write about yourself is because some of those bad memories are so much clearer to you than anything else in your life. And they really stick with you and, and, and you, you, you know, they're, they're viscerally clear and you have a much greater sense of the senses that, that of what you were feeling centrally at that time in terms of smells and sounds and sights and so forth, um, that, that, that those things stick with you more. And, uh, it's funny that you mentioned my my wife. She's she's probably my best reality check because I run everything past her, and she's very uh, particular about the kinds of things that she likes to to read and to watch on television. And and because she's exposed to a lot of different kinds of stories, and 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 she has patients who run the gum out of the kinds of, 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 of issues that they have to deal with. She's a great reality check for me. So, you know, she'll, she'll always tell me what's working and what isn't. And, 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 uh, when, um, my memories, uh, are, are fictionally creating characters that, that just don't jive with reality. She'll say, you know, this doesn't work. Even if this happened, you got to figure out, um, what it was that actually happened that, that, that makes more sense realistically to your reader. Well, and also just in terms of character motivation and the emotional uh, contours of what's going on, I would imagine she would have some insight there just based on the work that she does as a psychologist. Yeah, I mean, she really helped me sort of figure out the, the the character later in life, sort of the issues of holding on to anger and and how he's trying to sort of rebuild a relationship with his father, but at the same time he's he's avoiding his father because he's holding on this anger that keeps him uh, away from 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 visiting his, his his family for years and years and years. And and she helped me sort of understand that that's a pretty typical um, way that people have a, of behaving. That when they're they're angry, it's sort of sometimes it's the only thing the only power they have over. Or somebody else and it's very difficult to give that power up um, and I found that you know that particular discussion was very useful in developing the character later in life so I want to ask you about the um, the racial and um, immigration storyline in your book I don't you know for people listening um, who haven't read uh, you know obviously they're not going to have context but what I'm interested in is how relevant it seems, despite the fact that you were writing about 1974. Uh, yeah. You know, like, I guess, did, did, I guess the question is, did that occur to you as you were writing? Uh, was that any part of the calculation or was it kind of just one of these um, creative accidents that wound up uh, really resonating? It's sort of a creative accident. As I said, I started writing this probably 2012 or 13 before immigration became such a frontline issue. I mean, it was always an issue, but, uh, you know, since since we've had a new president, um, it's become so much more in our thoughts, and, and we're seeing the consequences of the way people, immigrants are being treated. Um, it's so much more in the forefront of our thoughts now. It's become a much greater issue. But originally, I decided to put that in because um, it was, you know, it was more of a reflection of my, my father's way of, of thinking about the world. And it wasn't so much that I didn't, I never 
never thought of him. I mean, my siblings agree with us. We don't think of him as a racist so much as a snob, is that he he always had difficulty with people who were not as educated as we were, or uh, you know did, didn't didn't speak well, or you know didn't didn't go to college, and and um, you know that was one of the problems he had with moving back to this small town, um, where there weren't a lot of other college educated people that he could he could relate to, um, and and there was uh, uh, at that time we had uh, you know when I was growing up we had a lot of migrant workers that came up from Mexico every summer to work in the fields around our small town picking peas and there was a green giant plant that 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 canned corn and peas there and they were starting to move into town and uh, that that worked its way into the story because um my father used to talk about undocumented immigrants and he has a whole spiel in the book about all the ways that they're abusing uh the system you know and it's the same kind we same same arguments that we typically hear about about what, why we shouldn't allow undocumented immigrants into the country um and he used to harp on that stuff i remember at the dinner table and uh, you know I, I use it there's an immigrant who works at the plant and he gets into a fight with with another worker and that's one of the main uh, um, thrusts uh, you know it, it sparks sparks one of the main conflicts in the book and it was his attitude towards those uh, the, those immigrants that, that helped me, you know, I really wanted to boost the stakes in the book and to make it more than just, you know, a, a white on white sort of conflict. But if it also had sort of uh, this this white on immigrant sort of conflict, it, it, it helped to boost the stakes in the book and to to bring some of the father's other opinions in as well. So I, we talk about how, you know, the book is a way of you exploring uh, who your father was and trying to make better sense of him. Um, but, you know, you're also in a way trying to, I, I would imagine, make sense of yourself, uh, particularly mm -hmm. yourself as a young person. Mm -hmm. I, th I think back to my youth. Um, I guess we feel like we're entirely different people. Uh, I get, you know, on some, in some ways we aren't. We're obviously still ourselves. But, you know, you move through life. You get to different stages of life. You right. feel you feel at quite a remove, you know, and, and you also don't spend a whole lot of time ruminating on your adolescence unless you're doing something as crazy as writing a novel about it. You know, so uh, do you feel like you gained some clearer insight into who you were or who you are? Um, did you take a look at yourself, maybe, you know, particularly at that age or in that age range and see things that you might have missed or, or um, find any surprises? Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, I mean, the book is a coming of age story in the sense that it's a young man who's being exposed to um, worlds that he's never been exposed through. And when he starts working on an, on an automobile plant floor after having been in college and and lived a relatively peaceful life in an upper middle class house, he goes through a great deal of culture shock. And it's the same thing I went through. It was like the language that I heard on uh, the foul language that I heard on on the plant floor and the, and the stories that people would tell and the way they treat each other. I mean, that took me some getting used to. And at first I thought it was sort of threatening and, and and, and uh, you know, worrisome. You know, uh, I wasn't sure what the motives of these people were and why they were talking this way. And then I realized that was just their way of behaving, and that's how they got along. And and after a while, I I I, I came to, to to feel much more comfortable with it. But at first, I went through that culture shock. And so when I reflect back on the 
the character then, I mean, that's what I wanted to write about is somebody who's being exposed to something he doesn't understand and, and that it, that he finally begins to understand as he, he learns who these people are and what their concerns are and what their problems are and, and, and begins to see through the, the kinds of things that when we look at immigrants who we don't know, we a lot of people find worrisome the fact that uh, that that you know a lot of immigrants may speak Spanish and not speak English and that that some people find that worrisome they don't speak English but then if they begin to understand exactly what they're saying they're talking about the same thing that we all talk about about putting food on the table and putting uh, you know and having a, a place to rest our head at night and having a decent job and and taking care of our children and, and those kinds of things that I'm really writing about cultural similarities and not 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 cultural differences um, and those are the kinds of things that I was coming to grips with as a young man sort of being exposed to to um, uh, people and lifestyles that I'd never been exposed to and and you know my father sort of put us there, put me and my siblings in this to, to sort of teach us a lesson to show us that this is not the kind of life that you want to end up with. You want to, you want to, you don't want to end up being in a factory. You want to get a college education and so forth. But I think we learned uh, other um, lessons being there that we learned that, 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 uh, um, that working class people have the same problems and the same issues and uh, that the rest of us do. And I think that was very beneficial. I was going to say, like, what a great lesson uh, to be exposed. Um, you know, I think just to be exposed to different cultures and different people, uh, people whose backgrounds and lives and lifestyles are different than yours. Um, you know, we could all use more of that. Absolutely. Um, I want to ask you about, uh, you know, you say you have all these siblings. You have this father who was a very strong character who was dealing with uh, his own uh, disappointments, you know, professionally and, and emotionally, um, as you were growing up, like, I'm curious, like, where were you in the pecking order? Like, what was the birth order? Were you the eldest, the middle? <laughs> and then you mentioned, you, you mentioned um, that your sister was the favorite, uh, probably just because she was a girl. <laughs> your father was like relieved to have a girl. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I was the, the, uh, there's five boys. I was the last boy and there's two girls and my little sister was the last girl. So it was, it was uh, boy, girl, boy, girl, boy, boy, boy boy girl so uh <laughs> so my little sister was the one that he'd been waiting for all along you know you i almost feel like they finally stopped after he got the girl that he was waiting for and that i was the biggest disappointment because i wasn't a girl because he, you know four boys in a row and he was waiting for a girl i don't know if that was true or not but yeah in the pecking order i was i was way down there and uh, yeah, it was part of the problem i mean a huge having a huge family like that uh you sort of get lost in the mix you know <laughs> Were you were you Catholic? What was going on with all these kids? We were Catholic, yeah. I was brought up Catholic, and um, you know, it's a bit, yeah, that you just had big families, and they didn't believe in birth control, and and uh, um, you know, I I. I I would never do that. I, I have uh, a, a daughter and a son, and I always, my wife and I always talked about never wanting to have more kids than there were parents. We didn't want to be outnumbered. Uh, so I, that, you know, <laughs> I hear that. I got two myself. I got a boy and a girl too. So right, right. Um, well, I want to talk about publication. You know, you go sure. through you go through all of this work over all these years. Um, you take this book through all of the feedback uh, processes that you went through, all of the drafting and redrafting, and then um, you get to a point where you feel like it's ready. Um, mm -hmm. I guess maybe we should stop there, and I just would ask, how did you know? 
Like, is it just, at that point, is it just intuition? You've taken it as far as you can take it and you you feel like it's time to go or was there something more specific than that? Um, I, I knew, I mean, I got to a point where I knew it was running long. I think it was probably a hundred thousand words. And, um, there was, uh, and I did, I did hire at one point a developmental editor who sort of, uh, and I think my publisher also pointed this out too, when I first submitted the book to her, that there was a little bit of a disconnect for how the character evolves after 1974 and 2004. And she wanted a little bit of more of understanding of how uh, how things changed for him and what he went through. And so I realized I needed more words and that more words were problematic because it's a first novel and, and publishers want first novels to be no more than 85,000, 90, 100,000 words. And I was already at 100,000, but I thought – you know, I got to make it work. I got to make it right. And I and I didn't want to shorten what I already had. And I knew I how to add more and that I had to add more. So I just went ahead and did it. Um, uh, and it ended up making the book a lot longer. And, uh, you know, so this was before I actually had a, had a publisher that that, that uh, somebody had mentioned that this was a problem. And it was an issue that once I did have a publisher, I still added even more words, but she was okay with the length. But uh, um, part of the problem with, with getting this book published was that it was it was longer than, uh, than agents and publishers wanted to deal with at first. It was 130,000 words. And, um, you know, as like I say, most publishers won't even look, or agents won't even look at Books that are over 85,000, 90,000 90, words. Um, but I, you know, I wanted to make it right. I wanted to, 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 to make those connections that people felt needed to be made, that I wanted to connect the, the past and the present and, and to make that transition uh, clear and, and, and plausible. Um, so I felt I had to, had to add more and, and that's why it turned out as long as it did. Okay. And so then you get to, uh, what, an agent? Or did you submit to publisher? You submitted to the press directly because you, you're published by Golden Antelope, which is a small indie. Uh, yes, can, it is. Can you talk right. about just the process of getting there? Yeah. Well, actually, I did submit to, I probably submitted to 200 agents. And I did have maybe eight or 10 full reads that agents looked at. And uh, you know, a lot of them liked the book, but they felt it was too long. Um, and, you know, agents, when they when they reject you, then they don't often give you a lot of feedback. Um, they just say it was a book that I, you know, I couldn't fall in love with the way I wanted to fall in love with it, That just typically what they, they say. Um, and so, uh, you know, I was trying to struggle how am I going to get this thing published and, and, uh, do I have to, do I have to cut it down? Uh, and how am I going to do that? And I talked to, a uh, an editor at a conference, uh, this, 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 uh, this, uh, young woman. And, um, you know, she said she liked the book cause she'd read 20 pages of the book and she said she liked it. And she asked me what I was having problems with. And, you know, and I talked about the link and so forth. And she said, uh, well, there, you have several issues. One is, um, uh, your reading audience you know, that the most readers these days are women. Seventy percent of literary fiction readers are are, are women, and, and only thirty percent are men. And you're really writing a book for that, that more men would appreciate, um, and that most of the 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 authors that are being published today tend to be women or tend to be uh, non traditional writers. And, and you know that's perfectly fine. I think we should be telling all those stories, um, but it makes it difficult for somebody like me who's who's doesn't fit into to to those categories um you know i'm i'm an old white guy unfortunately and and uh uh 
so I had I had difficulty getting an agent for a number of different reasons. And, and but and this this editor suggested, well, why don't you submit directly to to some of these publishing smaller into publishing houses? And she suggested I look up uh, you know the lists that are available on like poets and writers uh, website. And so I did that, and I submitted to about a dozen um, publishers. And within three or four months, I I had a contract with Golden Antelope. And it turns out that my publisher is uh, a former English professor and her her husband. And they've been publishing for about uh, 10, 15 years now. And they publish a number of different books and they publish what they like. And they don't have concerns over length. Um, and they know that they're not going to be able to hit the same markets that that the big five do because of the length of the book and because of the market. But they, they publish what they like and, and they liked my book. And, and that's eventually how I got the book published. That's how it should work, though, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> like they, we it's like the book. The book is good. Who gives a shit how many words are in it? You know, like who cares what the author's profile is? I feel like there's so much or there's too much emphasis placed on uh, marketing. And yet I understand that books need to be marketed. But it's like, you know, it's like we need somebody who's going to make a splash, who's 24 and they have this headshot and they've got this platform and they've got a Twitter following and it's like, Oh, oh yeah. my God, you know, it's exhausting, but and I you get... still have to do that. I mean, I've still try to do keep up with my Twitter and my Facebook and I've got a, a very elaborate, uh, um, website and, uh, I, I try to, 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 to join Facebook groups that help me learn, uh, to promote the book more. Um, and I really, it's, it's, it's been exhausting because I haven't really been able to do any writing since I've taken on this project of, uh, of promoting the book, um, but it's but it's true that the, that the, the the publishers have very specific marketing ideas of what makes a good book, and and you know what's ironic about the length thing is that once you have published your first book, um, you can publish a book that's. 120, 150, 200,000 200, words, as long as your first book did really well and the publisher feels like, well, you have a name and people will buy you no matter how long your book is. But because you don't have a name and you're you're not established yet, they set these limitations on, on, on what you can do for your first book. So, uh, I, you know, we've talked so much about fathers and sons in the context of your life in this book. I'm, I, and we talked a little bit about your sister. Uh, but what about your mom? I'm curious to know about the mom. You know, the, yeah. she, we haven't heard much about her. Yeah. And, you know, people say, why is your mom more of a presence in the book? And unfortunately, my mom was kind of this passive person in the background in my actual life. And in many ways, she was more like a sibling than a mom that that uh, she she was very much cowed by my father. He was uh, he was a very I mean, he was a, a full colonel in the Air Force and he commanded troops and he commanded officers and doctors and he was on the front lines in the war and he was. You know, he had learned he had this learned behavior of just bossing people around. And and it's totally understandable when you're in that position. Um, but unfortunately, he bossed my mom around and he bossed the rest of us around. And she was very cowed by that. So to make her a bigger character uh, just sort of wasn't possible because she wasn't a huge character in her life. She was always sort of in the background and, and she sort of, tried, you know, but she you know, she sort of hid when 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 problems er, uh, erupted, and and when he started again becoming abusive, you know, she sort of blended into the wallpaper because she didn't want to uh, get involved with that. And he was never abusive toward her, but um, uh, you know, it, it was hard to make her more of a, a much bigger character because my father was such a huge character; he sort of overshadowed everybody else in the family. And what about being a like having artistic leanings? Uh, you know, you are a guy who 
goes off to graduate school to become a playwright, and your dad is an yeah. Air Force colonel who, you know, yeah. like commanded troops in like war theater. Like, what, what was his? What were his feelings on that? Yeah, well, I mean, I got that all from my mom. Actually, she was a poet and she was uh, a composer, and she played the piano wonderfully, which is one reason we got the piano. Um, and uh, I think the one, you know, I, I do have to say, my father never really told us. Unlike the character, the father in my book, in reality, my father never really told us what we had to do or what what we should do for a career. He never said we had to be a doctor, we had to be a professional. You know, he just wanted us to be well employed and to be responsible adults and to find a career that, 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 that would allow us to support ourselves no matter what it was. And, uh, you know, and, and when I got out of college, I immediately became my first job was as a journalist and I was able to support myself and get my own apartment and, and, and so forth. So as long as we were able to support ourselves and be responsible, he never really cared. Um, but, uh, what, what else we did with our times. And, and I don't think any of us in our family, even though there are a lot of artists in my family, one of my brothers is a curator of a museum. Another one used to be a manager of a symphony. Um, but all of us, you know, we had responsible jobs in those, in those, in environments. Uh, being a curator can be a well-paid job. Being a ma symphony manager can be a well-paying job. But it allowed us to express our creative interests as well. Um, and uh, for me, it was just, it was never possible uh, to do that until I really quit, uh, like I say, quit quit working and started, started writing full-time. So, and you're working on another novel? I am working on another novel, and uh, uh, it's, uh, um, it's based on... Um, uh, I was doing research uh, before the, the the 2016 election. I was doing research on the Berlin Wall, and I had a, an idea of writing a story that was set in in Germany in Berlin in the 60s and about. And I, so I was doing all this research on how uh, people uh, escaped from the wall and and uh, found that. Some fascinating research uh, that actually some of those tunnels that were built under the Berlin Wall were financed by American television networks, and and I started getting ideas for this story. Uh, and then a certain person was elected president, and I decided, you know, what would happen if if this book was set in New York uh, a few years from now, and uh, the New England states had seceded from the Union, and there was a wall around uh, the remaining states, the, the, the New England states and the Pacific states had seceded from the Union, leaving some 39 states, and a wall was being built around the United States, not to keep people out, but as in what happened in Germany, to keep people in. Because in Germany, there was a brain drain, and which is one reason why they built a wall, that uh, East Germany was losing all its scientists and engineers and professionals. And, uh, you know, I sort of positing, could that happen in this country? Could that kind of thing happen? So my book is, is basically a, an escape book about uh, two lovers who get separated by a wall that goes up one night in midtown Manhattan, sort of closing the, the, the final link in the chain around the country goes up and 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 uh, this 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 man who happens to be a cable news reporter has to figure out how to get his his lover out of the United States so it's 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 a very different kind of book a dystopian book sort of a, a political thriller um, and an escape novel uh, that sort of reflects on uh, you know uh, of, of, of a future that we hope is not going to be possible but you never know. <laughs> 
I was just going to say, isn't it, isn't it crazy that we have to contemplate whether or not such a thing could happen? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very difficult kind of book to be working on because, you know, I you know I hear agents say, oh, I don't want to have anything to do with books that are sort of anti-Trump or anti-president or or uh, or so forth. So it's it's, it's a hard it's uh, it's hard to try to imagine marketing this book, but I could never have imagined writing this book back in the 60s, knowing how well it fit in our current environment and 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 how much more um, uh, relevant it was to what's going on today if I sort of said it here rather than back in the 60s and so that's why i wrote the book i don't know how how much success i'll have in getting it published because uh as i say it's uh, uh it's a difficult environment for publishing books like this but uh i don't know um, i feel like there's got to be there's got to be there's an audience for that i think there are people out there who are feeling pretty dystopian right about now it, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. I, we'll see what happens in the next few weeks. I'm sure uh, people will feel uh, very dystopian once they see a president emboldened by the fact that there's not, not enough uh, senators to to uh, vote for impeachment. Uh, well, we'll see. Hopefully, some people come to their senses. We'll find out, I guess. But yes, uh, right. I want to ask you. My last question for you is: you know, I always hear people talk about how you know you finish a book, you go through all the rigors of getting it done getting it out there into the world and then you have to write the next book you start from a blank page you know, at square one and mm-hmm. it's always a new process you know the books i've heard people say you know it gets actually gets harder with each subsequent book to start a new and write a new one or it's you know it's always a bear to to to, to yeah. write a book i'm curious to know if the writing of uh, you can see more from up here has been instructive in a meaningful way with the writing of the book that you have in progress right now? Like, is it getting easier? Did you learn lessons on this debut that you are applying to the new one? Or is it basically because it's, and it's also a very different book, as you just said. So is it just completely learning how to do it from scratch? No, I think some of the lessons I learned, um, you know, was there, there are scenes in, you can see now more from up here, uh, where there are confrontations between the father and son that I found very difficult to do. And I thought I, I, I think I was sort of avoiding them and at certain points and people said I had to address them more directly. And once I did get into them and realized that I could do them and that it was a confrontation that needed to happen, I realized in my subsequent writing with my new book that I needed to be as direct and confrontational with this book as I was with that. So there are scenes in my new book that, uh, I, that I approached much more directly than I might've had I not had that original experience. And I think that helped me to solve some plot problems where I really couldn't figure out how to finish the book until I realized, well, if this certain character confronts that character more directly, maybe he can figure out a way out of this particular problem. And that's what happened for me. I I mean that that book is basically done. I'm I'm rereading it now. I haven't looked at it in months, and and I'm trying to decide if I need to do any more work on it. Um, but that that is one of the lessons I learned from writing. You know, you can see more from up here is is to be more direct and to to face those confrontations that need to happen for the book to really move forward and to up the stakes and make make uh, make it more exciting for the reader. I think maybe one of the operative lessons that we can take away from this conversation for people out there who might be writing for myself, whoever is that uh, pay attention to what you're avoiding <laughs> like or putting <laughs> exactly, or yeah. putting off until you know next year or whatever it is that tends to be the thing that you need to lean into yeah exactly exactly especially if you find yourself going back and rewriting the beginning of the book or other scenes then you can tell yes i'm definitely avoiding something and then something i need to address directly 
All right, Mark. Well, listen, um, I'm glad we got a chance to spotlight this one in the TMB Book Club this month. Uh, happy holidays to you. Congratulations on uh, the publication of your debut, and I wish you the best of luck on the next one and beyond. Great. It's been a pleasure, and, and thanks for having me on. All right, guys, there you go. That is Mark Guerin. His debut novel is called You Can See More From Up Here. It's available now from Golden Antelope Press. It's the official December pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. You can see more from up here. Go get your copy immediately. If you want to find Mark online, you can do that at mark You can also track him down on social media. He's on Twitter. His handle there is at Mark Guerin. He's on Instagram. He's on Facebook. He's on Goodreads. He's there. He's all over the place. Thanks to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music there at the top of the uh, interview. If you would like to write to me, if you have something to say, you can email me. The address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. If you would like to support this program, I would appreciate it. Everything's free, so it's uh, you know it's listener supported. You can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. I would also be grateful if you would uh, rate and review the show over at iTunes. That just takes a couple minutes, but it really does help. It helps other people find the show is what it does, and it helps the show. I don't know. It's something algorithmic. You know, it helps in the algorithm. Help me in the algorithm the Apple algorithm. Don't forget about the Other People app. It's free. It's out there. It's a good app. It's a great way to listen. The Other People app. It's free. So, uh, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa, whatever it is. I believe, let me look at the calendar here. We got this episode going up. And then there's going to be a Christmas Day episode. My guest will be Milo Martin. My old pal Milo Martin. It's going to be a good one. And that will be the last episode for uh, the year. And I will be back on January 8th. (laughs) 